0: Hello everyone and welcome to Placing Faces, the show where we sit down with some of the most influential casting directors in all of Hollywood and across the entertainment spectrum. I'm your host, Charlie Chappell, and today we're talking with Marsha Goodman, who's a casting director, a voice director, and probably a huge influence on your childhood. Marsha is responsible for a good many of the cartoons we all know and love, She got her start with Deke at the very beginning. She's cast and voice directed everything from Inspector Gadget, the real Ghostbusters, G.I. Joe, Captain Planet and the Planeteers, to Buddy Thunderstruck, not to mention both the old school and recent reboot of The Care Bears. We got to sit down with Marsha in her Los Angeles home on a beautiful Wednesday. She was incredibly welcoming and just a joy to meet. She offered to feed us, made sure we were never thirsty, and kept us so engaged with their stories that it was really easy to lose track of time. Marsha is a casting great in the VO world, giving legends like Maurice LaMarche, Billy West, and countless others their first roles in animation. She has an Emmy under her belt for Madeline, and shows no signs of stopping. She's also got a keenly developed sense of humor, which has clearly served her well in her work and relationships with the folks she's cast. It was wonderful to chat with Marsha, and we had a great time delving into the nitty-gritty of animation casting. So. Sit back, prepare to take a trip down nostalgia lane, and I hope you learn as much as I did. Were you a cartoon aficionado growing up?
1: You know something? I never was. I really didn't care care that much about cartoons. I mean, I watched them when I was a child, but the way I got into this job was, was I was going to UCLA getting my master's degree in film, and I was making documentary films. And um, I was working at a talent agency. My uncle is a pretty famous talent agent. He's like the Broadway Danny Rose. He okay. He was Woody Allen's first agent, and he had a lot of the old comics and stuff. And we worked at that agency. And then when I graduated from UCLA, um, I needed to get a job. So my husband's father's partner's daughter... <laughs> This is complicated. I should say it faster. My husband's father's partner's daughter, they were both doctors, my husband's father and his partner, his daughter was in the entertainment uh, agency business. Not talent agents, but finding people to work in the entertainment business, more like clerical jobs. So she sent me for an interview at this company called DIC. And I came up to the office and it said, DIC, Los Angeles, Tokyo, Paris. I said, I want to work at a company that's named after a penis that has offices in all these places. And maybe I get to go there. So uh, I interviewed with the boss. There were just two people working in the company. Andy Hayward was the president. And I didn't tell him I had a master's degree because nobody wants to hear that in show business. It's kind of. They don't care it's kind of a, a, a negative, really, because you spend too much time in school and you should be out working and getting ah. experience. Yeah, they don't care for college. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I tell. I didn't tell him. I just told him I went to film school, and he hired me to be like a production assistant. We were in the recording studio. The first show we recorded was Inspector Gadget, and um, I was his assistant then, and I saw... Him, you know, he was running the company and doing everything, also directing the voices. And I said, boy, I'd like to do this. You know, I'd been working in a talent agency. And although I hadn't experienced directing actors, I'd been working with them. So he kind of lost interest in doing that because he had so so many other things to do. So he let me do that. So I kind of learned on the job how to direct actors for animation, which is a really different thing than directing them in theater or television. So, um, Actually, I told him, you know, I did go to film school, and I could edit this, but then when I tried to edit it, it was, it was such a mess <laughs> <laughs> that we had to hire a professional. I wasn't really good at that, but I really enjoyed working with actors and casting. So I started casting, and then I started directing.
0: Okay. So with, with Inspector Gadget, for those of you who grew up in that era, uh, or in my era, for that matter, um, that show starred Don Adams... As Inspector Gadget, who famously was Get Sm- or was uh, Maxwell Smart from Get Smart. What was it like? because were, were you directing him and his performances? Were you?
1: I was later. Well, the, we did. They did. Um, twenty six episodes originally, and we just I came in after they'd finished recording those okay. in, in Canada, <clears throat> and then um, when the show got picked up, I took over the directing of that. So. Because there was, were a
0: ton of episodes, like the first season, there were sixty-five episodes.
1: That's right, right, sixty-five episodes. So those were all finished by the time when, by the okay. time I came to Deke. So I came in after um, after the show got picked up, but prior to that, I think I worked on Heathcliff and there was another show called The Little's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was fun. But those were all in post production by the time I started. Just the first season of Gadget and the first season of The Little's. So I got to work on those.
0: So you were in the the very bottom floor of when Deke started, exactly. And you got to grow with Deke, which I assume eventually got more than two people working.
1: <laughs> yeah, there were several hundred by the time yeah. they closed.
0: Yeah, it was one of the biggest companies out there that was doing animation at the right. time. Right,
1: it's true, and it was one of the first companies that did both a, a series that would be in syndication as well as a network. They hadn't done that before. Okay. But, um, yeah.
0: How did they, were you part of the business side at all, or were you just mostly maintaining and, and executing on the productions? And
1: I was not part of the business side at all. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't too interested in that, although sure. I did do the negotiations for the talent.
0: Well, I mean, other, some of the other talent that you had on that show, you've got Frank Welker, who was Brain, and Dr. Claw, and Frank worked forever and and did voices for so many different things
1: he just won a lifetime achievement award yeah yeah I'm, he was the voice of scooby-doo and, yeah uh,
0: now he also voices fred on the new iteration of scooby-doo um oh and you know might know him from Me- as megatron and the transformers movies like he's he's everywhere then he's, you've got
1: those great animals too he was also yeah. brain Mm-hmm. brain uh, and inspector gadget and he does all the chimps and all those movies about the you know planet of the apes he does all. Let's <laughs> see what's the little with the yellow hat. Uh,
0: oh, uh, uh Curious George?
1: Yeah. He's the voice of Curious George. <laughs> he's a brilliant guy and he was also a wonderful comic too. He did stand up. He did an opening act for um Elvis Presley in Vegas.
0: There was stand-up opening for Elvis. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing that I've noticed, especially in the 80s and 90s, uh, with with these voiceover performers, there are a lot of the same actors coming up that are now like the megastars of that world today. Um, Frank is one of them. You've got Cree Summer, who was Penny, and Holly Berger, who followed up uh, as Penny on on Inspector Gadget. But I'm curious about the size and scale of the talent pool. Were there a lot of voiceover actors out there?
1: The thing about voiceover acting and acting for animation is that uh, they have a a specific SAG contract. You know, when we were working with SAG actors, or even Canadian, where um, with SAG you get two voices for the price of one and a third additional voice for 10% more. So... We had to find actors that could do multiple voices and sound like different people. That's um, when I teach. You know, I tell people you have to. Women have to be able to do babies, kids, teenagers, moms, old ladies, and you have to be able to do all different kinds of accents. And with the men, you know, like one of few people can do teenagers or or kids. Like only um, Billy West. There's hardly any people. There's so many people that I gave their first job to, like Billy West, Everybody Maurice Lamarche, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, so you have to find people that can do that variety of voices, not just one, unless they have a really unique voice. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a large pool of voice actors, and it gets bigger, bigger every day. But oftentimes people just fall back on the people they know because they're so. It's such a a different kind a different style of acting you have to be bigger i say bigger faster louder when you're <laughs> when you're doing animation because animation is so the process is so ex- expensive that you know you can't leave dead air in there it's like doing more like doing a radio show than doing a, acting for film or television there can't be any subtlety you know and there can and it has to be nice and strong and energetic all the time
0: and people like Maurice LaMarche and Billy West—they're very, very good at that.
1: Yes, it's like when I was directing um, Tom Cruise; he was the original Captain Planet. It took a while for him to to get the energy required, you know, for a character. Then he ended up not doing the show because he just didn't have time.
0: Sure, but with that show in particular, that show drew a lot of talent that wasn't necessarily specifically voiceover talent. I mean, right. you had. Meg Ryan on that show. There was I mean Jeff Goldblum was there. You you had Elizabeth Taylor Elizabeth you you a- Taylor was there. Like it's <laughs> it's it was incredible like going through and one, rewatching these shows because a lot of these shows are on YouTube. You can catch a lot of these things. Really? But yeah.
1: <laughs> you did your homework. <laughs> I did. I did
0: do my homework. Um, but I mean you've got it, it, your uh, Gaia was Margot Kidder and yeah, Whoopi Goldberg. First Whoopi Goldberg was the you one had I had. Ed Asner playing uh, Hoggish Greedley, You had Tim Curry, uh, John Ratzenberger, Jim Cummings, uh, super talented. If you don't know his face, you know his voice. You know all of his voices. He's Winnie the Pooh. He's Winnie the Pooh, t- Winnie the Pooh <laughs> in the in because uh, he just took over as Winnie the Pooh right for and this he's new movie. He's in the movie. theatrical release. Yeah, yeah. yeah um jeff goldblum like i said martin sheen Meg ryan phil hartman fred savage dean stockwell neil patrick harris that show drew a bunch of people what was it about that one that drew so many
1: that was the first cartoon or ch- a children's program that was specifically focused on the environment and and conservation
0: I feel like a lot of senators now need to go back and watch that show.
1: <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, every all the good that was done is being erased. But Yeah. But it was uh it was a really cause celeb at that point. In fact, we had put an ad in the um variety that some we want we were looking for Captain Planet, this about for the first to play the lead role in the first animated children's program that Dealt with environmental issues, and Tom Cruise called our office. <laughs> really? I <laughs> wanted to be Captain Planet.
0: He saw the ad in, in Variety and wanted to be Captain Planet.
1: And the thing about um, doing shows like that, once you get one person, it kind of snowballs, you know? Sure. So,
0: so once you had—because, I mean, Tim Curry was in a lot of the episodes as Mal—
1: Tim Curry is a wonderful actor. I worked so with him incredible. on s- several things. He <laughs> was in Ghostbusters, and he was, uh, he was just a joy to work with. Lovely man. Yeah. Uh, I, s- I said to him once, I said, I wish all the actors could be so, as good as you and as w- enthusiastic and as warm. And he said, now wouldn't that be dull? <laughs> <laughs> he was very humble and just Lovely.
0: Well, and there were there were a lot of actors that you worked with. Um, you know, I want to talk a, a little bit about Maurice because I love him. I've I've followed his career for a really long time. I think he's he's super incredible and I I listened to a podcast that Maria recommended to me um called Batman the Animated Podcast okay. about the Batman series and they were talking to Mr. LaMarche, and he brought you up. Did he as 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 being uh, somebody who really, really started his career. I mean, he was he took over as Chief Quimbley on uh, Inspector Gadget after Dan Hennessy. And that was his first recurring role on anything. And he talked about how he was doing stand-up, which you've, this is the second person now that you found from stand-up. Was that a place that you would find people often?
1: Not really, because a lot of stand-up uh, comedians were not very good actors. There were very few that were good actors. Phil Hartman was a wonderful actor, and Maurice was just a natural talent. He was brilliant and so versatile. yeah.: so. so
0: even at that time, even before he became all of these voices, he did he have that range? Did you see that range with him on stage? It was in his act. It was part it was. of his act. He,
1: he, he did voices of all the cartoons he watched as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> The, well and he's the
0: kind of guy it it sounds like he could sit next to you and just hear you and emulate that.
1: He did. He used to do um Don Adams. Sometimes he didn't feel like doing, you know, doing certain aspects of the role so. <laughs> he's like, uh, Maurice did Don Adams when he had to be underwater and kind of gurgle. Don was <laughs> Don would say, he does me underwater. I can't do it Don's voice at all, but Maurice did it perfectly and Don got such a kick out of it. He wasn't uh, Threatened at all. He just really enjoyed it. He, let, let, let Maurice do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's, it's, it's amazing to see the talent uh, of these people, especially when you grew up watching cartoons like I did, and then you see them nowadays getting kind of their, their time in the light because people care about these things. And there's so many opportunities for, you know, with podcasts and with, you know, Comic Con and things like that where you see these people doing these voices and you're like all of those voices are coming out of you but then you go back and you look at somebody who I also want to talk about Mel Blanc (laughs) so you worked with Mel you said that was one of the first people you directed
1: it was it was Mel Blanc on Heathcliff and he was such a lovely man and so talented and so good I mean he knew what he was doing he'd been doing it for 50 years already and he was it was like, All oh, I thought, it, is this a, how directing is? It's so easy. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't. No. After him, no.
0: Oh, okay. With him, it was super it easy. It was
1: just a breeze, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, with him and with people like with, uh, uh, with uh, Maurice and, and you know, some of these other names who have, are really, really talented with this, how much direction did they actually need? And how much working with them to get the performances out of them that you needed had to happen?
1: Well, it depended on the project itself, you know. And on Ghostbusters, we had Maurice LaMarche, Dave Collier, Frank Welker, and Arsenio Hall. It was like four comedians. We laughed through the whole session. We had so much fun. One day, I was directing the actors. They were cutting up so much. That, that I was more like a school teacher, a disciplinarian, than an actual director. All right, we're back to the show. One day we're recording, and in walks Ivan Reitman to see how we're doing. So that was a little exciting.
0: So, with these sessions, are, are multiple people recording at the same time to go off of one another, or are they hitting their lines one by one? How how is that working? On again, I know it probably changes for show. But with, with this one in particular, were they all in there at the same time?
1: This one in particular, they were, were all in there at the same time, which was pretty hysterical. We hardly ever do that anymore. I mean, like, I just did Buddy Thunderstruck, and we were at the Stupid Buddy Studios, and they only have one mic, so you have to have one person at, the, at a time. So I have to be really familiar with the script and know how the actor is supposed to be responding to the person that they're talking to who isn't there.
0: Sure, and I think that this is a good opportunity then to go into, with a lot of your projects, you are casting director, but you're also voice director. What does that job entail? Is that actually sitting in the booth, listening to them and saying, no, do it this way or push it that way? or?
1: That's exactly what it is. Yeah. You, know, you have to tell, if they're not, like if you have the script or the storyboard in front of you, and you see, you, we used to work with the storyboards. We don't anymore. But um, you see that they're in a, a distance from each other. Then you have to tell them, you're pre, you've got to project in this scene. You know, here, there, There's a windstorm behind you, so you've got to pretend you're yelling. And I have to oversee the technical qualities, too, of the recording session. You know, we can't pop our P's or have hisses or, or any kind of sibilance. So we're watching all of those things at once, the the acting, is the most important, but if there's any technical problems, we have to do it over again because they can't use it.
0: With each one of these shows, are you working with a lot of the same people to do multiple roles, or are you, when a new episode comes up and you've got a new like guest star type thing, and I'm not even really sure how it works compared to you know, live action television, mm-hmm. when you've got a new character that comes in, are you... How does the casting process work for these new characters?
1: It depends on the show itself. You know, if it's just a small part, you can, you know, because you have people that are can do multiple voices, you just have them, th- you know, pick this f- line up. There's just three, three sentences from this character, and but if it's completely different, or if there's, you know, a cast of all guys, we only with Ghostbusters we had all guys and one girl. And so we'd have to bring in, you know, other women or we've had all kinds of interesting people on that. We had a we had Sir George Martin's son, Gregory Martin, do a voice on that. And he's his voice sounds just like his father's, you know, it's deep and husky. We had all kinds of, you know, they because they had to play ghosts. So and we didn't want the our original characters to strain their voices, you know, and get not nodes on their <laughs> vocal cords
0: well because a lot of the shows you cast from the very beginning do they exist like show uh, when when you're casting voice when you're casting cartoons is it similar to other television shows and stuff where you're putting out offers to people where you're are you often like reaching out to a lot of the people that you know directly that Maurice can knock this out so we're going to go ahead and offer this to him or is it a little bit more uh open from the beginning
1: that's a good question Normally, uh, when you're starting a new series, you have to audition, you know, do a whole casting process and audition and have several options for each character. And then the producer decides, Um, you know, when I was at Deke, I could make all those decisions. But now that I'm doing freelance, there's a lot of um, cooks (laughs) that give their input. So so they so we do the whole casting process and we give several, several options for each character and normally, the, everybody that we submit can do multiple voices. So um, that's how it works.
0: Now, with these casting sessions, because I've actually never been into a voiceover casting session, is it on tape the same way that a television or, or movie audition is? Or is it just voice that's... And how are you presenting that to the powers that be... Uh, in in modern
1: most people nowadays have their own voice actors have their own facility to record so um, we send them the auditions I give them any information I have sometimes we have a picture of the character and I ask them to send me an mp3 I have a little recording studio myself that I can have some people come to if they don't have the uh, ability to record at home and uh, we narrow it down sometimes we bring them in you know, to see how directable they are. Okay. After, you know, after they're in the finalists. Yeah. And um, and then the producer usually decides. And a uh, project I'm working on right now, um, Care Bears.
0: You're working on a, a, is this a reboot of Care Bears? That's exciting.
1: I worked on it in 1985. I was going to say, now that's I'm one working. of your
0: very early...
1: <laughs> so the first things I ever did and I'm doing it again and 2018. So it's, you know, the thing about animation is that every 10 years you have a whole new audience. Yes. So you can, you know, they can watch the old things, they can watch the new things.
0: Which, you know, it's, it's a conversation that a lot of people are having in Hollywood right now in general with movies and with all these reboots and TV shows coming back as movies and a lot of people complain about that. But I had a conversation with a friend of mine here a little while back who kind of broke it down the same way that you just said. Every generation, every, every 10 years or so, every 15 years, with maybe with movies, you have a whole new generation that's coming in that's not going to connect with Ghostbusters like I connected with Ghostbusters, because it was of the times for me. Right. The same with these cartoons, but updating it and bringing it into the modern era, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. It's made for a new generation that's going to be consuming that content. Because Care Bears from the, from the 80s isn't going to... The pace is different. The, the stories that they're telling is different. Even Captain Planet, which I watched uh, quite a few episodes <laughs> again for this because I loved that show growing up. Some of the stuff that they're talking about, a lot of it is still... like We're still dealing with a lot of the same issues that they were hitting in that show. But to see an updated version of things like this... Is what sort of things are you taking into account differently now than you took into account in the 80s?
1: Uh, well, first of all, one of the, ma- the major um, impetus for making animation all throughout the period was merchandise. Sure. <laughs> you got your G.I. Joes and your. <laughs> right. So that was a big, um, a big consideration for a lot of the projects I worked on. And then there was, then the FCC got involved, you know, kind of in in children's, you know, Peggy Charon was was talking about children's programming and how, you know, you couldn't put commercials for the same subject, right, in in between the cartoon itself. So there was a lot of um, discussion about that and a lot of thought about that. And Captain Planet was one of the shows that, you know, was just, there was some merchandise, but that wasn't the impetus for the show. You know, and the, another show that I love, that I was really proud of, um, that there was wasn't too much merchandise, a little bit. But that's when the one I won my Emmy for is Madeline, mm-hmm. which is something that I'm so proud of because it was off one of the few shows that was girl orient, female oriented, little girl oriented. Although boys could watch it too, but she was a strong little girl when it was all, you know. Um, superheroes and and boy things and and GI Joes and everything. Then there was Madeline, and they were all the little girls were so supportive of each other and they were loved each other and they were helped each other in you know difficult situations. So that was wonderful. But uh, even with the sh- like Strawberry Shortcake and and uh, and Rainbow Bright and all those shows that originally were put out by merchandise companies, they had to have a theme, and they had to be socially relevant, and they had to, do, had to show caring and support, and you couldn't undermine other, other characters. You know, Even the bad guys, you couldn't say really terrible things about them.
0: How gratifying was it at that point to be able to win for something like that,
1: it meant a lot. First of all, we never thought it would happen. <laughs> I mean, we had done other shows like Carmen. Where on earth is Carmen San Diego? That was educational. And that was for PBS. And we mm-hmm. did Liberty's Kids, which was about the American Revolution. That was for PBS. So there was, a, but that was after Madeline. Um, it was a thrill. It was so exciting. And because of the woman that wrote it, uh, Judy Rothman Rofe, was a good friend, and we were we were. In it together. It was really gratifying.
0: Well, with these kind of shows, how did you become part of? Specifically, with this one, how did you become part of Madeline? And it was this—you were you weren't still with Deke at the time. Right? Yes, you I were. Uh huh. Okay.
1: So it was a DEEK project. Okay. And we had to, um, since the little girls were French, it was really hard to find American little girls that could speak. You know do the French accent, speak French. So we ended up recording that in Canada, which was perfect, you know, in Montreal, where everybody speaks French. And the first person that did the, mu- the music, it was wonderful, some wonderful music on it. Uh, Joe Raposo, who wrote for, um, did all the music for Sesame Street. He wrote It Ain't Easy Being Green. And right in the middle of it, after the first season, he passed away of a heart attack. Suddenly it was terrible, because he was young. And uh, we ended up having another um, composer named Andy Street, who was also just fabulous. I mean, he made some such wonderful songs. And Judy Rothman wrote the lyrics as well as the scripts for the shows, or oversaw the script writing. And uh, it was just a a real team effort, you know. And the little girls were so adorable and sweet.
0: When you're working with kids as opposed to adults... What are the things that kind of, what, what things are more difficult and what things are easier?
1: I think it's just generally working with kids is more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them are really talented and really good. Um, of course, you're limited in the time. You know, you, California state law requires that you have a teacher there and they have a certain amount of, of um, schooling to be had for each one. So you have to kind of do it in shifts and it takes a lot longer to work with real kids. But the little Madeline girls, they got it. They were all professional actors.
0: How old, like what age group were they in at that time? They were
1: like eight to 12. You know, as as we did, did so many episodes of Madeline, the girls grew out of their voices too. Although most, most of the time it's boys that grow out, their voices change and uh, you have to recast
0: but, um, and when you recast, are you ha- are you trying to find somebody who matches that voice as close as possible? Yes, yes. How, because I, I know I've seen that happen with television shows and stuff where they're trying, they have to recast a character and they try to get them close enough. How difficult is it to find somebody who has that same voice quality?
1: It's difficult, but not impossible. You just keep, keep trying.
0: And what sort of resources do you guys have as voiceover casting to to draw people in? Like, are you putting out on the same breakdowns that that other things are going out on, or are there other different resources?
1: Normally, um, I've never actually used the breakdowns, but um, normally we go to the voice agents, and they, they submit people, or I teach acting for animation, so I have a huge um, bank of wonderful actors that want to get into animation, but they've never had the chance, you know, because the pool is pretty tight, you know, and people tend to use the same people that they know. So, um, you know, we try, we have them submit auditions and see what happens.
0: So with your teaching, uh, let's get into that for a little while. How long have you been teaching acting for animation?
1: I'd say at least 10 years.
0: Is this a class that you teach somewhere here in Los Angeles?
1: It, It is. It's a class that I teach at a place called the voice caster it's a voice casting company and they teach acting for promotion they have different uh, classes okay for promo promos and commercials and i teach the animation
0: how do people find out about this how how can they get more information and jump on board because i want to do this <laughs> <laughs>
1: Actually, there's this great um, pamphlet, and it's also online. It's called the VoiceOver Resource Guide. And I would highly recommend that to anybody that is interested in doing voiceovers because it lists all the voiceover agents. It lists all the classes you can take. It lists uh, all the rates, the commercial rates and everything, just about everything you would need to know. All the recording studios. It's a great—I'll show you the pamphlet later.
0: Great. Um, So uh, another thing is voiceover reels that I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about because they're they're different than a video reel because a lot of your video reel is, one, showing that you can act, and, but it's portraying who you are. With voiceover, you're portraying a lot of different people, a lot of different characters. Are there any do's and don'ts of voiceover reels that, that you run into often that you're like, I wish people would stop doing that or that you wish people would do more of?
1: Well... I, I focus on animation reels. Normally on voiceover reels, people have um, like four sections, you know, they have the promos and the commercials and the animation and the uh, like narration. So they'll have four, you know, there's not, not reels anymore that is all, you know, on their website or wherever. So, um, so for animation, first of all, it should be no longer than a minute and a half. I play samples in my voiceover class, you know, and you can go on any of the agents, voiceover agents' websites, and they'll have um, samples of all their clients. And you can listen to those and see what they do. But you have to get as many voices, different voices, different sounding voices as possible on the animation reel, showing different ages. If you can do animals, that's always good. Um, If you can sing, you put a little of that in singing character, put that on and, um, But keep it to a minute and a half. Um, I tell people, maybe write a little skit for yourself, you know, something entertaining because it's torture listening to those (laughs) things and it's torture doing them. It's a hard job. So something that you can amuse yourself with. And plus agents, you know, if you want to submit it to agents, you get a voiceover agent. They have the attention span of a gnat. So it should be a minute and a half maximum with multiple, multiple voices and ages and accents.
0: Okay. Um, So another one of the shows that I kind of wanted to get into a little bit uh, was Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. (laughs) Um, Was this one a Deke as well? So what's really interesting to me about this one is the first season, you have Keanu and Alex Winters and George Carlin as the leads. They're still the voices of the characters, correct?
1: We did not have Keanu you didn't. I, no. Does according it say-
0: according to IMDb, you did, I, and I, it was one of the ones that I couldn't find any episodes of. Really? So I was just going off of the IMDb. So he wasn't able to do it. But I
1: don't remember George Carlin either. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, the the blonde kid was. The Alex only Winters. One. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. With a show like that, and with a show, uh, you know, there, there was uh, the real Ghostbusters as well. These are two show cartoons that were based around big movies that were a big part of the zeitgeist at the time what sort of freedom do you have to make it its own thing and what sort of like constraints do you have to make sure that it's close enough to the original property the original ip that allows it to still work
1: well that's usually mostly up to the producer you know and ghostbusters Originally, the character of Peter was played by Lorenzo Music, who had his own style. He had a kind of a laid-back, monotone style, but he was a wonderful actor. And when uh, Bill Murray heard the the voices, he said, how come um, Maurice is doing Egon, Harold Ramis, and it sounds just like him, and, and Peter doesn't sound like me at all? And so then we replaced him with Dave Coulier, who was doing the exact voice of bill murray so there's so many as i say there's so many chefs involved you know that get their fingers in the pie so it's it's really determined by outside sources
0: yeah um so
1: did that answer your question yes yes it did (laughs)
0: uh so i'm curious about voiceover actors in general do a lot of voiceover actors start off or appear often as traditional on-screen talent or is it a fairly specialized group from the get go.
1: That's a good question too. Again, it varies, you know, when I teach my class I say the most important thing about acting for animation is acting. You have to be a good actor. Everybody thinks, "Oh, I do funny voices, I can, you know, my cousin says I should do cartoons." Well, I say, I say you're up against people from the Royal Shakespeare Company, you know. Tim Curry does <laughs> voices, wonderful actors. And then on the other hand, there's some, you know, screen actors that don't sound horrible when they're doing cartoon voices. They don't get it. They do, can't do the mic technique. They can't get big like it needs to be for, for acting, for animation. So I won't mention any names, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's acting is the most important thing. And then if you can act, you have to be able to act big, you know, ham, ham it up. Everything you learned about acting for, for the screen or for television You have to throw it away. I say, sledgehammer is what we need for cartoon anime (laughs) acting.
0: Um, So with that being said, are there tips and tricks as a voice director that you have to help people get out of that smallness, out of that subtlety? Other than saying, get bigger and... (laughs) Bigger,
1: louder, faster. I Uh said, do what you're doing, only a lot faster and a lot bigger. And I, I tell them, emphasize words. There's a whole process to it. You've got to find words that you emphasize. You've got to... The characters in animation, they don't have expression on their face. So it's all in the acting. The emotion is all there. So you have to go through the script and the copy and find and find something that you can go after for every single sentence. Every sentence should be different. You can't sound like you're reading. You have to sound like you're acting for every... And, and when you do... When you get copy for um, audition copy, what they do is they take excerpts from the script, most likely, the pilot script, with different scenes where there's different emotions showing so that we can get the range of emotion for the talent to make sure they they have the capability of really revealing it through their voice.
0: Is is it very often that you cast somebody that you, that you find out down the line a couple episodes in or an episode in that... This isn't working, and yes, that happens often.
1: Often, yes. Yeah.
0: I guess this line of questioning is kind of the process of casting, meshing with the process of the animation, meshing with the, the whole timeline of things.
1: Right, and with the other talent as well. You know, yeah. Oftentimes, you some voices sound too too similar once you get them into the studio, and so you have to either nuance it or do something in post production or or recast.
0: Sure. Where in the development of these shows is the casting, as opposed to the actual recording, as opposed to the actual animation part of it, as opposed to the release of the show? Like what? You
1: didn't know that. That's right. Yeah, I've I I no it for so much for granted that uh, <laughs> the very the well. The first thing is the the script is you know developed, or the series is developed, or a bible is written. For the show you know with, with description of each of the characters and then they write either the writer the head writer in the show will write ex, um scripts for each audition for each character to audition or else they'll have a pilot script that we can take um excerpts from Then we we do the audition and they hopefully they've drawn the characters beforehand in the bible there should be the character just um description as well as a picture of the character. So then we take that to the, actor, to the actors, to many, many actors. You usually see about 30 to 50 people per, per character. And uh, they submit an audition, or we, we audition them. And then we narrow it down. Then we record. The writers are writing the scripts. So we record the script. It used to be we'd, re- we'd get a copy of the storyboard but we don't get that anymore. They do the storyboard after we record the script. So oftentimes there's pickups because the, they'll make changes in the storyboard. And then um, then the animation is done last. And then if we need to do any corrections, we do looping or ADR to okay. pick up some lines at the end that aren't working. But
0: So they're basing a lot of the animation off of the performances.
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and that's okay. really important for the animators to hear the voices, to know you know what what the expression is going to be on the face or whatever.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to all this stuff, that, like I was saying at the beginning, uh, my ignorance is my sword right now because I don't know about this whole process of casting. The more we can find out, the more we can know because, you know, it's with you you've been doing it for so long you understand it like n- probably no other person out there right now there's very few yes. who understand it like you, like you
1: there there are several but i take it <laughs> for granted you know i just assume that everybody knows which isn't the case so this is good that people are learning how the process works yeah yeah but definitely the voice comes first the only uh, only way time that doesn't happen is when like they're dubbing a, like an anime cartoon or something then. Sure,
0: because the voice already came first. They right. animated it off that, and now they're redubbing it. Right. Um, so casting directors are starting to receive more recognition for this um, with award shows and the Ardios Awards and things like that that are happening. But in the interest in intersectionality, do you feel better or less represented in the community of voice casting as a when it comes to casting in general, getting the recognition that it that it deserves.
1: You know, I've never not felt that I didn't get enough re- recognition because <laughs> the voice, you know, the animation community is is so much smaller, and we all we belong to the Television Academy and we get together and we vote, you know, for the Emmys and things like that. So we're a pretty tight knit group, and um, because I'm also directing, I get acknowledgement for that as well. Probably if I was just casting. I might not feel that way.
0: Sure. Sure. Because I know you helped discover uh, Maurice and and a couple other people. Are there other people that you feel like you helped kind of usher into the world that we still hear their voices nowadays?
1: You know, when I go to parties, people say to me, you gave me my start in the business. (laughs) If it wasn't for you. (laughs) I can't remember who they are. (laughs) But, But it was Maurice Arsenio. That was Arsenio's first cartoon um uh townsend coleman okay says that to me um and billy west that was his first cartoon he was on that uh, was
0: billy west's first cartoon
1: yeah he, he was on the what's his name stern howard stern show doing that but he hadn't done cartoons before yeah because he's huge yeah. he's
0: huge and he's the name i mean he's got his podcast and and other th- like everybody if if you know anybody in voiceover you know you probably know maurice lamarche and you probably know billy west And if you don't, you do because you've heard their voices in everything.
1: David Coburn ended up being the voice of, I don't know if you know, he ended up being the voice of Captain Planet. He's a wonderful actor. Um, For a while I was doing, there's a lot of Canadian actors. um, I mean, I've worked with so many people, a guy named Long John Baldry in Canada was British. He was a famous blues musician, um, Jim Burns. A lot of actors that in Canada and who else in America? One one good one though that I love telling people is that for a while um, our boss went to to Omaha and he came back. He was in a project with um, Warren Buffett and I directed Warren Buffett on his first cartoon. He was fun and. Uh, there was a young man in Omaha that was part of, There was a children's theater there And my boss came back He goes, those people are really good I want you to start working in Omaha It'll be a lot cheaper than working in LA And there's a lot of talent there Which was true There, was a, there were several community theaters But one of the young men that uh, ended up Being cast in Street Sharks Which is my son's favorite show
0: I love Street Sharks <laughs> growing up
1: <laughs> And uh, Archie He was the role of Archie His name is Andrew Reynolds And um, he decided to move. He he was one of the stars. He was only 16. He was one of the stars of the children's theater there. And he moved to New York. And for a while, he was having a really hard time getting a job. And I cast him um, in a few things I was doing. He was um, Hamilton in our Liberty's Kids. And uh, he used to write me and say, oh, if it wasn't for you, I'd be starving to death. (laughs) And then he got cast as one of the two leads in Book of Mormon. And then he got cast uh, from Book of Mormon. He got cast in that television series for HBO, Girls.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) And now he's on Broadway all the time. And And I gave him his first screen credit. I'm really proud of that.
0: (laughs) Well, one of the things that you've cast a lot of uh, are heroes. You you, with Captain Planet and with uh, one of my other favorites is COPS, Cops. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know why that one stood out to me, but i I remember that show so vividly from growing up. What is it about a voice is heroic? is there Is there a quality to different voices that you can pick out? And this may be a very like too vague, too general of a question, but it's interesting to me to try to try to figure out what qualities within voices you're looking for for a heroic person. Or, uh, you know, the side buddy character or the love interests, or any of these different things? Are there certain qualities that you're looking for?
1: Well, oftentimes the hero hero has to be deep voiced, but it's more in the acting than the voice quality, really. They have to be able to project... The feeling of being heroic, you know. Uh, When I was directing Tom Cruise as Captain Planet, I kept saying, Tom, just give it another six inches. And he said, Marsha, you're embarrassing me. (laughs) 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 But then he'd he'd be able to get it. I mean, that's why you have to do a shorthand when you're directing people. So um, that was my shorthand for him. But uh, (laughs) it's just, it's the acting quality. And the, and the internal strength that they project into the mic that makes it heroic.
0: Well, and when you see a lot of these people, when you see Maurice, sometimes the voice that's coming out of him doesn't seem like him. And with a lot of these other people, you're, you, you, their, their quality of voice, but their presentation is completely different than their visual presentation. So one of the things that you did... Uh, was um, Dennis the Menace. So you did the cartoon, but you also did a television movie where you cast. How difficult was it to square those two things after having cast the voices for Dennis the Menace and then also having to then cast a human person who sounded like that and acted like that, but also looked like that?
1: You just have to go through the process, you know, and, and see so many people... You know, and you have a lot of input from producers and the network and everybody that's paying for it. So sometimes my choice isn't always the one that they pick, but we have to give them a lot of options to see as many people as possible.
0: So with that, in 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 the sense of working up the chain, Mm -hmm. when you're casting things, I assume it's kind of that way too when you're casting voice. There's other people that have to sign off. How much of that are you fighting for? A certain person, or is it? Here are your options. Take your pick. Any of these people would do it.
1: If I have if I have a person that I think is really perfect for the role, I will push for them. But if they're if it's equal, then I let them, the uh, suits <laughs> make the choice. Now, one thing you were talking to, about earlier, I don't, if we can go back into Please. it, just the um, saying that the people don't have to look like the characters that they play. I was, that's one, another thing I talk about in my class. I see that everybody wants to do animation. First of all, because, you know, first of all, a lot of celebrities want to do it. A lot of times, though, it's it just pays scale, it doesn't pay that much money. It used to pay a lot when you did. An- um, worked for Disney, like did a Disney movie and you get residuals from the um, DVD sales, but there isn't isn't aren't DVD sales any longer so that doesn't work, but I tell people you know, people don't do it for the money and agents don't like to hire people to do animation because they don't make that much money, it's 9 times out of 10 it's scale, you know, plus 10 and there aren't that many residuals nowadays either, so I say, you know, people really love animation. They want to do it. And I say, you know, it's great. People, There's the competition, first of all, and the people that are, have been doing it for years. And that I said, but the great thing is you don't have to memorize a script. You have it right in front of you. You don't have to wear any makeup. You don't have to fix your hair. You can wear pajamas. Nobody cares. So it sounds it's, pretty good. It's, it's pretty fun. And, and you, you know, if you make a mistake, you can do it over again. Nobody yells at you unless you make too many mistakes. But there was, there's a, some great stories about you know, mic technique and people. Um, there's this famous, famous actress that was really funny lady. and did, She was a musical comedy star and a Broadway star. And they were in the studio, and she was in her 50s. They were in her studio, and they kept saying, Your blouse is making noise. She says, oh, okay. And she took off her bus and recorded in her bra with the whole cast in the room.
0: (laughs) Get the job done. Exactly. So as we're winding down here, I want to talk about, uh, there's a couple shows that you're currently working on, uh, on top of doing another Care Bears, which is awesome, (laughs) Um, and uh, Buddy Thunderstruck. You cast and work with Harry Chaskin, who was the one who introduced us to you. So thank you very much, Harry. Uh, Really, really appreciate it. This has been a blast to talk with you. (laughs) thank Uh, you. um,
1: I love Harry. He's so talented. He is wonderful.
0: Um, And there's
1: the heroic voice for you.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And when you meet Harry, he's this very quiet, very, very humble, but what i'm curious about is what are the differences that you're seeing in modern television uh, animation casting than what you used to see back in the day is is there like the technology how it's changed and how uh, how is the is the process faster is it sped up because the technology has allowed it to speed up
1: you know the technology has changed a lot but it doesn't, hasn't sped up the process at all because it's still a little belabored. You know, you go through, you go, either you have the whole cast in, in the studio and then you have to make sure you have no technical problems and you have to make sure everybody's getting their lines and that the, the sound is balanced, or you have one person at a time and uh, the assembly is, is a lot faster. You know, editing is a lot faster. I mean, we used to use razor blades and tape. But you don't have to do that any longer. But the process itself is still t- takes a long time because, especially when you had the studio, when we were doing Buddy Thunderstruck, um, we had uh, Ted Remy. and he hadn't done that much animation. He'd been on a lot of on-camera stuff before, and he was a wonderful actor. I mean, he is a wonderful actor. But he, you know, he'd be, he's an actor. <laughs> it was, the thing we said to him all the time: faster, just like that, only faster. Because animation just is expensive, and you have to do it fast. And if you, if it takes, if you do it as long as it take would take to do a show, you'd, you'd have an hour's worth of animation. You know, just one person. So just you have to be on people all the time, faster, and do it. Emphasize this word. You know, this is you're responding to this. So it's especially when they're by themselves. You know, they they don't have a clue how the other person has. Sure. There's no read the line, there's so. no
0: response and you can't ping back and forth off of one another.
1: So I have to be I have to know either how I'm going to have the person if they haven't come in yet have them say the line or how they've said it in respond and this person has to respond to the way they've said it. So
0: So with that is that just the experience that you had over the years of being able to know that or how are you tracking that uh, how you want to capture that?
1: I make no. I make notes in the script when I go through it. You okay,
0: know? okay. Um, well, I want to. I, I want to open up the floor to you and and ask if there are any other stories or info out there that people can find about you and your career.
1: No, I think I think we've covered a lot. I'll probably wake up in the middle of the night and think of something that I haven't told you. But well, <laughs> I,
0: I've still got more questions, but I'm getting the the. We need to sign getting off. Getting the uh... Uh, Yeah. the The red light is coming on. (laughs) Um, You know, some of the things that I I did want to get to uh, because they were shows that I loved growing up were Sonic the Hedgehog and the Super Mario Brothers Super Show and Super Dave. Oh gosh, those were also
1: like whole half hour shows and uh, descriptions in themselves. All Sonic the Hedgehog was, you know, Jalil White who was the voice of Urkel. Oh, he was a character. He was so much fun. And then we did Sonic. He had to do three different voices when he played his sister and his brother, and himself. Yeah, we did a lot of episodes of Sonic yeah. Super Dave.
0: And they're doing a live-action Sonic the Hedgehog. Are they? Yeah.
1: Oh, that's right. <laughs> they just he won't be playing that. that. I don't know who's going to do that voice. Bob yeah. Einstein was hysterical. Mm-hmm. He was so funny,
0: so good. I, 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 and that show didn't run very long, but I remember it it's those saturday morning cartoons there's something that's missing in today's society because they were so violent they were (laughs) (laughs) they absolutely were (laughs) uh this has been an absolute pleasure marcia goodman thank you so much for sitting down with us and having us in your home
1: my pleasure thank you all right that was fun
0: I don't know about Maria, but I could have stayed there eaten cookies and talked to her all day. If you want to find out more about anything we talked about in this episode, check out our website, PlacingFaces.com, for all the links to the episode's show notes. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, love, heart, thumbs up, and share the show. Unfortunately, we don't have the means to market properly and relying on word of mouth for growth, so every friend you tell means the world to us. Tune in next week when we chat with Denise Champion. And if you don't know who Denise is, you need to remedy that immediately. Denise has cast some of the biggest movies with some of the biggest and brightest stars and the best directors out there. From Saving Private Ryan, Big Fish, Red Sparrow, to The Man in the High Castle, and the recent release of Bumblebee, my favorite of all the Transformers so far. I think
1: that for the most part, because there are many different reasons why people become movie stars, but I think they are truly talented. I think they're good actors. They know what parts they should play. They know what parts they shouldn't play. Um,
0: So there's an awareness of self there. I
1: I think there is. I think there is. I've seen a lot of A-list actors pass on roles that they didn't feel they were right for. And most of the time, I have agreed with their decision and I've understood why they've passed.
0: Placing Faces is powered by Collaborator.com, a media production service connecting media professionals to companies, brands, and agencies, allowing you to scale your production based on your needs. Video professionals find work, and companies save money. Have you ever wanted to be a casting director, or do you have a project that you need casting direction for? Check out our partners, the Casting Society of America, for more information. They have introduced us to so many of our guests while serving as a hub of information about this branch of the entertainment industry. To learn more about the society and what it takes to get into casting, you can visit www.castingsociety.com. And lastly, if you have any feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. What casting directors do you want to hear from next? Thank you so much for tuning in, and be well.